90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, I'm trying to survive this awful heat dome. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's the whole <laughs> Western U.S. has just been oppressively hot this last, since Sunday, really. Oh, boy, has it ever. Um, we've had a lot of problems because we haven't been able to get out into the field during the normal times. We're having to wake up at 4 a.m. to go out and do field work, which I am a night person, so this is not wonderful for me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, we were out in L.A. last week just before the the heat wave got there, and people were already preparing for it. And that's also why our show was late coming out last week. Uh, <laughs> as, as we discussed, that I had some problems uploading it uh, while on the road, not with the Internet, but for some reason our podcast host would not accept the file. And I ended up getting it to upload by remoting into my computer in Pennsylvania. So I think there was something very weird about making a file in one time zone and trying to upload it in another to a server oh. that's in yet another. I don't know exactly what happened, but sorry about that, folks. <laughs> and I'm just going to laugh because I don't know any of what you just said. So that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've actually got some more feedback. Uh, this is impressive. I'm super excited. Yeah, we're on a we're on a streak here. So uh, we got some feedback from Steve, who listened to our show uh, last week about the 1906 uh, photo of San Francisco, and actually sent us uh, a link to a comic that I'll put in and a video that was taken on the streets of San Francisco, like from a cable car before and after the earthquake. It's just amazing to see the, the difference. Uh, yes, it was. It's unbelievable. Um, it's so crazy how much devastation that that 7.8 magnitudes caused back then. Well, and the most striking thing to me, actually, about the before video was <laughs> the traffic. I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, there were a few comments on that as well. I thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> it, it looks terrifying. There's bicycles, pedestrians, horses, carts, motor cars, trolleys. And there's. it's not like we're driving in lanes. It's just random aggregate <laughs> movement in any direction that you want to go. So basically, um, it's the same as driving in San Francisco today. <laughs> uh, yeah, that could be. <laughs> A few less horses, I guess, but still. Yeah, I mean, if you're there in December, you have all the, the Santa convention. So <laughs> traffic can be hairy around that, too. Oh, hairy. Good one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, that was great. So um, keep sending in that feedback. This is super exciting. Yeah, this is, this is really great. And our other announcement is our partnership with the Orbital Mechanics on the book club. Uh, we're actually going to start meeting uh, this coming Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, so if you're <laughs> looking at your calendars, that is the 27th of June. Um, that'll be exciting because we're spanning a lot of different time zones with this. Um, and I'm really excited to get started on this book. And this first chunk is a really easy piece, right? Yeah, we're only looking at, I think, about 27 pages. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to the book club page, and it's got the reading schedule there. Basically, what's going to happen is we're going to read Ignition, an Informal History of Liquid Rocket Propellants by John <laughs> Clark. And you can get a PDF if you're Googling online. 
uh, because it's an out-of-print book, and if you buy it uh, in print, it's very expensive. Yes. <laughs> and then we'll get on this Discord server that they've got, which is kind of like a, a group Skype call, and just talk about the book for a little bit with other folks and learn a lot together. It should be a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, I'm, I can't wait. This is definitely... I, I struggle with nonfiction books, as you know, um, but I'm, I've already sort of skimmed this one, and it's already caught my interest right away, so I'm excited to talk about it with the Orbital Mechanics. It should be a good time. Yeah, so uh, I know Ben is calling it Season 1, so Season 1, <laughs> this Monday, uh, you should join. It's going to be great, and I, I guess with that, it, it actually got me thinking a little bit about publishing and writing, and I just got a paper... Uh, finally, through the entire uh, the whole process, I'm waiting on proofs now. And, you know, I realize that this is something that as academics, we do a lot. We write things and publish manuscripts. But I don't think it's something that a lot of people realize how it works. No, I don't. Um, I think the term, you know, publish or perish is something we sort of live by. And I think people have heard that. And so they know this is something you should do. But it's rather amorphous. And I will say it's, it's kind of amorphous for new academics as well. <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I heard a joke a while back, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it now. I think it's a good preface to start this. Uh, imagine you and your academic advisor, co-author, whatever, walk into a bar together, and you bring your own beer. You sit down. You drink the beer. You get up. You wipe the bar down where you were. You pay the bartender $5,000 and leave. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, that, uh, is, that about sums it up. <laughs> that, that is similar to the academic publishing process right now. Uh, I, think, I think this is a good time, yeah, to explain to those people not laughing hysterically why that is such a great joke. <laughs> right. Oh, so, man. <laughs> as an academic, you know, you, you do your research and you hopefully find something interesting to talk about. And you, you wrote, you had to write a proposal to get funding to conduct the research in the first place. And then you had to do it all. And then you had to write it up. So make figures, come up with hypotheses, uh, explanations, text to go with it all, fully reference it to previous works, do all of kind of the, the fiddly bits with the typesetting. And mm. then you submit it to a journal. And... When you submit that file to a journal, the first person that sees it is the editor. And the editor of the journal, oh, excuse me. <clears throat> and the editor of the journal has to make a decision as to whether they think that this paper is a good fit for their journal, the topics, and if they think that the science is of the right caliber to be published in their journal. And if they do think so, then they will send it out for what's called peer review. Uh, that all sounds so fast and easy to get there. You sum that up in like three sentences, and I feel like this is a years-long process of even getting it to this point, right? Yeah, just getting to submission can take quite a while, depending on the paper. You know, various journals, uh, some of them have very short articles, so 1,500, 2,000-word kind of articles. Uh, some journals don't have length limits or have very generous length limits, and you'll see 40 and 50-page single-space two-column articles in there. Right, exactly. Um, and I think, I mean, for me, that's where it starts is, you know, I've done, I've done research. That's sort of an always an ongoing thing. But then you have to figure out where you want to go. Because in any discipline, 
as anyone who's followed our fun papers knows, you know, any discipline has a ton of different journals of which to choose from. And you have to decide just what John just said. Do you want a really long article? Do you, are you trying to just write a little short article? Is your research high impact? And that all goes into the decision of where to first send your publication. Right, because if you think your research is high impact and you submit it to nature or science, I mean, you've got less than a 20% chance of actually getting accepted into that journal in the end. And that that makes me so sad because I'm so scared of publishing and rejection, but you have to remember that there are, you know, 80 to 90% of the people sending stuff in are getting rejected too, so... You can take solace in that fact. <laughs> yeah, and then, then there are different journals that not, I'm not saying that they're lesser journals, that they have lesser impact science, uh, but there are journals that accept longer papers and papers that maybe aren't what they consider to be like a groundbreaking discovery, but an important advancement in the field. Right, And in exactly. those journals, the acceptance rate's a little bit higher, and it's generally a longer paper. Right, and I mean, these are... Just like John said, it's not like they're a lesser journal. They're important in different ways. So like in geology, Geospheres is a journal that has very long and um, very like all-encompassing articles. And so you know if, you know, there's something in Geosphere, you know it's going to have a ton of information in it because these are 10 to 20 page articles as opposed to a geology paper, which is, you know, one to three pages long. Right, with, I think, you know, a maximum of three figures or something like that, where some of these other papers might have 20 figures. Right, exactly. And, I mean, that's something to think about, too, is that if you've done a lot of microscope work, that definitely has to be shown. You can't just sum it up in one representative figure. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, Geosphere is a good way to go because it's got a lot of room, and you have to think of other things, too, like online, in print, stuff like that has to go into your decision as well. Right. Well, and so here is where I guess the first part of the joke comes in is because once you are accepted into these journals, uh, the journal generally owns the content now. Right. So the figures that you made, now you have to, the journal owns them. If you use them anywhere, you need to cite them as you would someone else's work because you do not retain the rights. Which seems ridiculously crazy. It does. Uh, and, I mean, there are some different journals that have different models for who maintains the rights, or is it, you know, Creative Commons license, which is becoming a little bit more common. Woohoo. Um, so, but where we left the paper last time, that the editor got it and decided that it was something that he or she was interested in putting into the journal, and then they send it out for review. And what that means is that you suggested some people when you submitted the paper and said, if you send this out, these would be some good people to review it for scientific quality. And also here is a list of people and an explanation that I don't want you to send it to under any circumstances. (laughs) Uh, That's generally if you have a, a very competitive field and there's somebody in the field that you have a personal conflict with, or if there's a conflict of interest. Uh, Right, which, I mean, nerd fights are pretty common, and so it's just unfair to bring that sort of personal side into it. So it's really great that you have that option generally to say, please don't send it to this person. And then the other side of that is some people have really specific uh, research. And so a lot of people may be geologists, but not all geologists are qualified, say, to look at anisotropy of magnetic susceptibility data and accurately understand sort of 
whether stuff has been done right or wrong or not. So that's where those three people come in that you suggest. Right. And so the timeline for this kind of is you submit the paper and generally within weeks, it's decided whether it goes out for review or not. Then they start the process of finding reviewers and everyone is busy. So unfortunately, <laughs> this process can sometimes take a while because people don't respond or respond no. Uh, and in the last paper that I had, I think it took a couple months to find the, the full right set of reviewers. Uh, right. And this, <laughs> I mean, my work email box right now, let me check. I have 836 unread emails. So um, yes, it takes a long time. <laughs> <laughs> the good part is in academia when you, I mean, especially if you're an editor in one of these journals, but also if you do reviews, that counts sort of towards your your service um, portion. And so you get at least acknowledgement generally in most jobs for doing this work. So there is, you know, an upside to it as well. Right, because it does take time and there is no monetary compensation for that. I mean, you're, you're not right. getting paid uh, to do this review. So you review the article, and generally you're given a list of guidelines of things that are, there is a little bit of the writing quality of the paper, but mostly it's scientific quality. Right. And then you make a list of, here are things that I disagree with or would like explained better or I didn't understand, uh, and you send those back to the editor. The editor generally gets two or three of these reviews and sometimes reviews it themselves, combines them, and makes a decision, and they'll send you the review uh, comments back and say, yes, please revise this paper and address these and we'll publish it, or we're not interested after this, or accept it as it is, which is almost unheard of. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So there are, even if you don't get accepted as is, which just like John said, that's not going to happen. Um, I would love it if that would happen to me sometime. But there's always a chance of, hey, this needs a little bit of work, which isn't generally a big deal. Or, hey, this needs a lot of work, but we're still actually actually interested in it. So there are a couple different levels. And that sort of depends on how long you're in the bar drinking the beer, right? <laughs> yeah, and so that's major and minor revisions. And depending on, generally if it's major revisions, after you do the corrections, it will be sent back to the same reviewers for reevaluation. If it's minor revisions, it may or may not be. Uh, sometimes if you get minor revisions after you do them and you address each point that each reviewer made uh, in a document, and if that you do that to the satisfaction of the editor, a lot of times they will not send it back out. So, right. for example, the paper that we just got accepted, uh, we had some very thorough reviewers, which is great because they caught a lot of really small stuff that makes the paper clearer if we more carefully articulate it or articulate it in a slightly different way. Uh, but I think my reviewer response document was north of 30 pages. Oh, wow. Wow. That's, uh, so that's that's, that's as much or more work than the paper. <laughs> uh, it really is. And I mean, a lot of this stuff, and just like I said earlier, um, is very specific. The research is very specific. So a lot of the reviewer comments you'll get back will just be clarification type stuff. And maybe it's not even something that gets changed in the document. It's just something, you know, that says, hey, I don't quite get this. Can you explain it? It's not necessarily stuff like, you're totally wrong. You have to fix this. Well, yeah, and one of them, for example, that you know we addressed was, well, you 
you didn't write this part of this differential equation like so. Uh, I know that you solved it like so because of what you say in the text and what this other diagram shows. And I know you're trying to simplify it here, but don't. I think it's more clear if you put the full form in. Ah, nice. And we did. Uh, and actually, you know, after thinking about it, I said, okay, yeah, that probably does make it a little bit more simple to, to wrap your head around. Uh, yeah, so most of the time, the reviewers are very helpful. <laughs> there are a lot of jokes out there about reviewer number three, though. Yeah, sometimes you get reviewer number three, and it seems like they were just having a bad day. Uh, I mean, sometimes the comments seem like, did you review the paper? That <laughs> did, did you get the right PDF? Uh, and that just happens sometimes. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, there are as wide a variety of personalities in academia as there are in any social setting. So. Uh, uh, ar arguably wider. <laughs> well, you know, that's probably true. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. there's a fun paper in that comment somewhere that we could find. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's a good idea. Uh, so the reviews can can really go either way, and there's definitely been cases where we've been trying to submit work to high-impact journals, and, and there you have to have three very positive reviews, and if you have two really good reviews and one, well, this was okay, uh, you're, you're done in that journal. Yeah, see, that's the that's the kind of stuff that makes me scared to submit things. <laughs> well, it, it's not the end of the world if you get a rejection letter, though, because you can't oh, but uh, it re is. revise and go on to a different journal, and you know, you you archive that email and pretend like it never happened. <laughs> I think that's something really good to remember. And I, not on this show, but in real life, I bug John about this all the time because I do have this crushing sense of, you know, being scared of rejection. And I know a lot of people do. I mean, especially in the academy because publishing is such a big part of our job, right? Just to get your research out there, to help people get interested in it, to therefore get money for your university. Um, but yeah, there's always another journal. There are a lot of journals out there and they're not lesser journals. There's just a lot of journals. So yeah, other yeah. people like me, just <laughs> just do it and you can go somewhere else. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and getting, you know, going through the submission process doesn't cost you anything. Right. Uh, the cost comes next. <laughs> <laughs> when you're done with your beer. <laughs> yeah. So you have done all this work. You've made this paper. You've submitted it. You've addressed all the concerns. And this company is going to publish it in their journal, which they sell subscriptions to universities to so they can make money. And you're going to pay them to publish it. And you better hope that you don't have a lot of color photographs that you need published either. Oh, goodness, yes. Um, <laughs> it, it really depends on the journal, what the publishing cost is. But it is not uncommon for a short to mid-length article to cost... Eh, five to seven thousand dollars to publish which is unbelievable and slightly prohibitive i think in a lot of cases too yeah and what really is difficult is you know so then it goes behind a paywall because the univ or the the journal is selling access to it uh, to make money again so if you want it to be accessible to everyone where they can just click the link and get the pdf uh, without having to pay that's called open access, and that generally tacks on another two or three thousand dollars. So this has to go into your decision on which journal to go 
to as well, which is unfortunate, but I mean, it's the reality of, you know, how much money do you have in your war chest to get your research out there, right? Yeah, and open access does give a lot more people access to the article uh, that can then read it and cite it, which is good for you uh, when people actually use it. But that whole thing, this is where publishing is a little bit of a, a weird model, really, that we're paying to publish and we're paying to access it. And it's kind of unclear what's going to happen now that all publicly funded research has to be publicly available. Uh, do, you mean, do you have to pay for open access? It's kind of an unclear thing right now. Uh, right, exactly. I'm actually really interested to see how this, how this goes because this is, you know, with the advent of all of this open access push, it's really changed. I mean, I don't know because I haven't been in academia that long, but just from talking to my other colleagues, I feel like it's really changed sort of the publishing scene. And so it'll be interesting to see where it goes in the future. I mean, and as our, as our listeners know, if they go to find some of our fun papers or behind paywalls, you know, and some of them are open access. And so. Yeah. And if you want to hear a little bit more about open access, uh, last summer we did an interview uh, with Elizabeth from PLOS. Uh, right. So you can, you can check that out. I'll link it into the show notes. Uh, so anyway, then if your paper's accepted and once you uh, pay them, then eventually you get, and, and you also have to sign a bunch of things signing the rights away. Uh, then you get what are called, or were called galley proofs. I don't think they're actually called that anymore, but you get the, the final typeset version of the document. And right. at that point, you can only make very minor corrections. Right. So this is the hanging comma or period that shouldn't be there, stuff like this. Yeah, and this is where I, I'm sure I drive them nuts because it's like, well, you know, the kerning here is not not okay <laughs> on this word. <laughs> and they say, we have people for this. You stick to the signs. Yeah, probably. So, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you send the corrected proofs back, and at some point in a few weeks to a few months, the paper is published in the journal. And if it's a high impact journal, there's also a press release that goes with it that the journal and often your university will put out. Uh, but there's also these embargo periods around it where you can't talk about it until after it's come out, and so on and so forth. <laughs> it's so weird because it's all your stuff. And then in order for everyone else to see it, you have to basically sign it all away. And it's, it's an interesting game that I think, just like you said, when you said we should do this show, it's kind of unique to the Academy in a way. Yeah. And when you tell somebody about all this, it's, uh, I think, surprising (laughs) to a lot of them. Uh, And it's a model that I don't know how long it will be sustainable in its current form, maybe indefinitely. It's just hard to tell. Right, exactly. But I think we've already seen a lot of changes just in the last five years. So um, it'll be interesting to see what the next five years holds for yeah. this going on. So Yeah, and I mean, we're not even getting into talking about books this time around. Uh, neither of us oh, have no. writ- written a book. <laughs> uh, I know a few folks that have, and I think it might be worth getting them on sometime to talk about it. Because from what I hear, it's quite an experience. And once you write one, you're not going to write another, except that you will. Uh, because apparently it's a little bit addictive. Exactly. <laughs> Just like tattoos. <laughs> but so much more work. <laughs> so, well, I think uh, 
that kind of covers the the very rough outline of the publishing process. And, you know, I've been through it uh, several times. I'm sure we have listeners that have been through it many, many, many more times than both of us combined. Yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> but in, you know, the, the little over half dozen times or so that I've gone through it, that's been kind of how it worked. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Um, and you plan this so much time and you put all this effort into it and it feels like forever. But man, when you click on that that uh, PDF online of your paper, it's probably, you know, feels pretty worth it, I think. Yeah, and it's also worth setting up the your Google Scholar thing to, to ding you when somebody cites your paper. So you can say, oh, yeah. somebody read this and found it useful. <laughs> And it wasn't my mom. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because yep. to show up as a citation, they had to read it, cite it in their paper, mm-hmm. and then go through this whole process and pay for their paper to get published as well. So, yep, exactly. Yeah. It's comparable to liking something on Facebook, but over a year's time and $5,000 worth. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, I guess with that, we can kind of keep this in our summer short range which we're doing better at this year Uh, i know i'm proud of us (laughs) i know and uh talk about the fun paper friday that you picked for us yay so my inspiration for this fun paper friday is the fact that it's been 100 degrees here and um because i don't have to map because i've already done this i try to find trees to sit under because it's really hot (laughs) So the paper we're going to talk about today comes from Frontiers in Plant Science, and it's called Quantification of Overnight Movement of Birch Branches and Foliage with Short Interval Terrestrial Laser Scanning. And this is Petonin et al. Um, And it's basically can be summed up by saying, do trees sleep? Right. And... (laughs) This is actually a really cool study Uh, (laughs) for for so many reasons. It it says laser in it, so I knew you'd be on board. (laughs) Yeah, laser and uh, weird plant things. I mean, we did the one uh, a while back about, what was it, the the plants remember? Like if you abuse them? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, these, I I don't know what my deal is with sentient plants, but... (laughs) So this is really neat. Um, the goal of the study, they say, was to determine whether birch branches and foliage, um, they kind of sag at night. It appears like they do. And so they use this terrestrial laser scanning to see if this is true. And does the sagging indicate that these trees have some sort of circadian rhythm like many other animals do? Right. So is it triggered by the sun going down and coming up or is it a built-in clock? or what exactly is happening. And it said that people before had tried with different uh, trees, basically just hanging a weight from some of the branches, a small weight, and measuring it, and didn't really get anything significant. Uh, But enter lasers. (laughs) I love this. Um, So they looked at tree in Finland, a birch tree in Austria, with these lasers and they did it at the same time of year sort of under the same conditions and they did this you know kind of far apart to see if they could see the same things in each of these um trees and it's actually quite interesting because with these lasers they did find that there's a lot of displacement up to 10 centimeters yeah i mean but so that's, where does that's that, four why? inches in, in yankee units <laughs> exactly and so it's really cool because it's not exactly tied directly to the sun. Um, 
it actually looks like these plants do have the circadian rhythm because their branches sort of perk up and they move upward before sunrise. So it's not triggered by the sun. So it might be some internal triggering mechanism. And that's really neat. <laughs> yeah. And well, so they, they did this in two places, Finland and Austria. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. That were roughly the same sort of tree and climate is what they were going for there. Right. And then they did it uh, starting at dusk and until dawn so that there wasn't wind moving the, the branches around. Right. And basically they set up this uh, laser scanner. You could think of it kind of like a connect. It's not exactly the same thing, but <laughs> you can think of it as something Close similar enough. that creates a 3D point cloud. And mm-hmm. so they had a 3D point cloud of this tree and picked certain features on certain branches that were easy to pick over and over again and picked it in each of these scans. So in the uh, the Finland tree, they had 14 scans and 77 in the Austria uh, experiment. And right. then they were able to make these plots of how much each branch sagged during the run. Right. Um, it's just unbelievable to me that this is tree sleep. That's so crazy because they measured, and like we just said, you know, up to 10 centimeters of sag that occurs after dusk and then bounces back before sunrise. Yeah. Well, and I also thought it was really cool. So the idea is that it probably has something to do with the internal fluid pressure of the tree, which is right. called turgidity. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's that's a new one for me. Uh, <laughs> so I remember it from AP Biology way back when. <laughs> I remember turbidity, but I think that's what, water clearness? Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's more of a sedimentary uh, scale. Yeah, so... Anyway, we've, uh, they said that you could measure the pressure through different ways, many of them invasive, but one of the more common right. was to strap this thing around the trunk of the tree, and it measures the trunk diameter to submillimeter accuracy, and that as the water pressure changes, the trunk actually swells and shrinks, and they can measure that and calibrate it back for pressure changes in the trunk, which is amazing. That's pretty good. That is amazing. And it's a big deal with um, these invasive techniques, too, um, I gathered from reading the paper. I mean, I didn't know anything about this beforehand. Um, so this is a huge improvement over those sort of measurements. Yeah. And, I mean, this just shows you that there are really cool sensing problems everywhere. Uh, yeah. And this is exactly, that's exactly it. So this um, terrestrial laser scanner... And this is the first time it's been used for these circadian rhythm studies. So that's sort of why this is a really exciting paper, because who knew that plants would have that, right? Hmm. Yeah. Um, you, previously, they used these TLSs, which, you know, we love acronyms, so I'm going to put that in, <laughs> um, <laughs> focusing on, like, seasonal changes in between trees. So they also said that this is one thing that um, this is the first time they've tried to do this in very similar settings, very far apart, under the same conditions as well. Yeah. Well, and so they, they had a few reference targets. And one thing I thought that to, to cut out the tree from the background, they would take one 2D projection, outline where the tree met, you know, the surrounding junk, mm-hmm. and then cut. And then you would turn the 2D projection a little bit and do it again. And you have to do that four to five times for each frame to be able to cut out mm-hmm. all the junk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm wondering if this was some undergraduates, uh, you know, senior thesis or something, supposed <laughs> to sit there and that's go through exactly these 80 things and uh, cut the uh, tree out. That's exactly what I was 
guessing that as well. Um, there's, you know, seven authors on this paper. So I'm imagining that that is true. <laughs> right. <laughs> and oh, authorship's a whole nother thing that we didn't get into on papers and I <laughs> uh, shouldn't. No, no. I think that's for another, a rant for another time. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, uh, well, we didn't really plan this show to be a rant on publishing. I don't think it is. It's just oh, no, no. showing that there is a a strange way that all of these sun papers actually had to navigate this <laughs> circuitous course that involves uh, sending large checks to people in the mail to get them out. So, oh, that is so true. Um, I, I love this beer analogy. I've never heard it. I'm, I wrote it down. I'm going to repeat it a thousand times now because it's <laughs> excellent. <laughs> I, I wish I could remember where I heard it and I would credit the source, uh, but it was several years back, and I just remember that I thought it was the perfect analogy. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. So hopefully that sheds a little bit of light onto um, you know, our worlds and the worlds of other academics that are doing these things that no one really seems to know exactly what they are sometimes, but there is a, there is a method to the madness and a reason for it as well. Yeah. So, well, if you have any fun papers that you think we should look at uh, or any questions, comments, anything like that, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can send those as text comments or as audio comments. We had one of those recently. Uh, you can just use the voice memo app on your phone. That's fine. And Shannon, where would they send these? Uh, well, keep this keep this feedback coming. It's very exciting for us to get email uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. And I am at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding